Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. And welcome to New York. It's a glorious day and we are overlooking skyscrapers to our right and we're on the deck of the USS Intrepid and that's because there's a space shuttle pavilion and right in front of us is a rather sleek, perfectly formed, tiny little jet, white with a blue streak and on the tail fin across a yellow band it says NASA because this is where astronauts have done their training. Yeah, that's a T38 which is almost like the almost <laughs> like the um the personal jet plane of, of astronauts back in the day, back in the uh, the early days of astronauts through the 60s and, uh, and 1970s. We're here because in a moment we're going to be speaking to astronaut, New Yorker and comedy superstar Mike Massimino. And I'll also be reporting from Houston, discovering how NASA is saving its audio archive. There was all these different teams that were working simultaneously to support that. So all of this audio that we've now released is sort of the rest of the story of, of how that happened. 1201. 1201. Roger, 1201. Okay, we're going. We've come around the corner on the flight deck, which is obviously the top part of the uh, aircraft carrier here, with Eric Bame and astronaut Mike Massimino. Eric, your curator here. The curator of aviation, actually. Curator of aviation. Can I ask you some space questions? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Because, uh, <laughs> aviation seems to go above the atmosphere these days. Okay, fine. Uh, because this has got a space connection, this aircraft carrier. Absolutely. Back in the 1960s, uh, the Intrepid was called upon to recover the uh, second orbital Mercury mission, which was Scott Carpenter. And uh, Scott landed some 700 miles off course, so the ship was nowhere. 700 miles? Well, wow. you know, there's different reasons for that, uh, but there was he, he came down a little long. And so uh, helicopters from Intrepid were able to recover him, but his capsule was recovered by a, a smaller ship, a destroyer. And, and then there's another one of the Mercury 7 astronauts also recovered. From that, this. That's that Scott Carpenter. One. That's oh, Scott that was Scott Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. Right. And then uh, the second mission was the uh, uh, Gus Grissom and yes, John Young yeah. in the very first manned oh, Gemini okay. mission. Right. And uh, they landed on target. And <laughs> uh, the ship was able to sidle up alongside. And uh, we actually have a replica of a Gemini capsule on the actual crane that pulled their capsule up out of the water. So it kind of replicates that little moment in history off the side of the ship. You've also got a space shuttle. Here. We do. We have Enterprise, which was the very first space shuttle built, and Mike probably already talked about that. Not yet. So, no. oh, okay. Well, you're going to be talking to Mike Massimino about space shuttles. The rest in you. The rest in me. Yeah. So, the, yes, we have Enterprise, and we're very happy to have Enterprise. Enterprise never flew, though, did it? It flew the what's called the ALT test, the approach and landing test. So the uh, the orbiter was brought up on the back of what's called the SCA, is a modified 747 airliner. 
and it was released in flight and had to prove, they really had to prove that the vehicle could land like a glider on its return from space before actually shooting it. Well, what space. I meant to say was it never flew into space. Well, you, I, but I'm getting technical on it. So. <laughs> well, but, let, let's... but it was built as a spaceship. We should add that. Everything about it, it's OV-101, Orbital Vehicle 101. And the intention was to eventually modify it for space, which it would have needed the thermal protection system, the engines, and the you know flight hardware put inside. But uh, all intentions to do that, but it never came to fruition. Uh, as it turns out, as shuttles were being built, they realized uh, Enterprise was heavy. Columbia was heavy. Each one they built, each of the six, was lighter than the previous one. And you want to be light because you want to be able to carry a lot of stuff high up the space. Like Michael, Michael talked about his missions, which went higher than any space shuttle mission ever. So. Well, that seems a perfect In fact, you're doing our job, Eric. Um, <laughs> moving uh, to uh, Mike Massimino. First of all, though, I want to get what your connection is because you actually work on USS yeah, I'm, Intrepid. Uh, I'm part of the staff just like everybody else on the team here, so... I don't, I don't uh, work, I was going to say I don't work as hard as they do. That's probably true, but I, I don't, I'm not here as often. I, I come here about one day a week to try to help out. And you also uh, work at the University of Columbia. Yes, I also am a professor on the uh, faculty at Columbia. Yep. So do you wander inside to the shuttle and uh-huh. think, you know, I've been on something almost exactly the same of this? Yeah, this all the time. It's a great place for me to come. I mean, it's a great place for everybody to come, come to the museum and I came here initially when I was a student at Columbia. Uh, I was an undergraduate there in the, in the 1980s when um, Intrepid first arrived. And I would, would come here for visits and get this inspiration. I mean, it's, it's, we're in New York City. There's not very many reminders of the space program or of uh, aviation here in New York City as a whole. But we have this wonderful museum where you can come and learn about those things, uh, about aviation, about the Navy, about patriotism, about heroes, uh, about science and engineering, all the STEM fields. We have programs for that as well. And take a look at the aircraft and now a spaceship. So I enjoyed coming here for inspiration as a young person. I really love coming here every, you know, to, to come to work here, but also uh, going and, and, and looking around that space shuttle is, is for me, it's, it's a wonderful, it's just great to be. Because you know, most astronauts leave NASA, and unless they, if they leave NASA, no, they're not going to have a space shuttle in their backyard like we have here, more or less. And you also have a T-38 aircraft that I got to fly yeah, on. Yeah, we mentioned um, that at the opening. Airplane. You've flown it. Yeah, so that's here. I flew as a co-pilot. I was never a pilot in command. I was a civilian mission specialist at, when I was an astronaut. So I always flew with a, an instructor pilot or one of the astronaut pilots who were uh, military test pilots or military pilots who were able to fly their vehicle, as uh, fly that airplane as a pilot in command. So I was only a only a co-pilot but I got to fly in it and I have a lot of great memories flying that airplane so I just love coming here and walking by the uh, the T-38 and the shuttle I, I, you know I'm not really sure which one I am, am endeared to more because it was the flying the aviation part of the job was just wondrous and we got to do it much more frequently than I got a chance to fly in space it's about every week we could go on a training flight in the T-38 and uh, just wonderful memories of doing that and no, the space wasn't bad either, right? So, again, to see a space shuttle. So this is great. Yeah, it's absolutely great. We also have a Soyuz spacecraft here as well. And I, I got a little bit of training to fly in those. I never did fly them. A lot of my friends fly, flying them uh, to go to the space, uh, space station. That's what we're using now. We also have one of those as well. We have a, a real Soyuz spacecraft here. So there's plenty of reminders of my past life here. It's wonderful. Eric, for you, I know your, your specialism is, is the aviation, but obviously we've got that T-38 here. Which exhibit 
here is it's considered the most unique. I mean, obviously not everybody has a space shuttle on, on board, but uh, other than the shuttle itself. Oh, there's just so much here. Mike failed to mention that he did actually fly a Soyuz on television ah. on the Big Bang Theory. Well, no, it really didn't go to space. I just had to throw yeah, that in, Mike. That's good, yeah. That. That, was a, that was a Hollywood-built Soyuz. So that was, that, yeah, that was pl- the one we have here is real. The one we had on the Big Bang Theory is made out of uh, plywood and paint. and you know, But it looked pretty real, though. But uh, to get back to your question, there's so many unique things here from the A-12 spy plane. Uh, Tom Cruise made the F-14 famous in the movie Top Gun. We have one of those. We have a World War II uh, torpedo bomber downstairs, which was also used by your country during the war. And uh, But really, there's so many unique things. Uh, we're standing not very far away from uh, a Harrier jet that was built in England. It's one of the first Harriers that was ever uh, sold to the American Marine Corps, uh, but it was built in England. And so there's lots of things here. We also, if you want to get unique, how about a Concorde? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We, we live not that far from Duxford Air Museum, so we see Concorde all the time. <laughs> so you've been Concorded already. And, and uh, you know, actually, a couple of years ago, I came over to England and um, I visited everything Concorde. I, went, I traveled around the country. And I, I used to live over there when I was with the American Air Force. So I'm very uh, adept at driving on your side of the road. So not a problem. Don't worry. We have lots of nerds who are fans of this podcast. <laughs> but you're safe here. Okay. So let's talk about space shuttle flights and let's talk about Mike Massimino's space shuttle flights two flights to service the Hubble Space Telescope that second flight I read even in the NASA biography they're normally pretty dry and boring they were saying all, uh, uh, all may, the problems you may not want to let them know that <laughs> that's not very nice <laughs> it's very straight yeah. of you know they astronaut, bi- so, astronaut right. biography but they were saying of all the problems you had on that on that mission how much just give me a sense of how much you had to do and what improvisation was involved what state was it in the the telescope yeah Uh, well it it was uh it was the final servicing mission to the telescope and we knew it was like no kidding it was going to be the last one because we were retiring the space shuttle so there's going to be no way to get there with the equipment that we would normally have and there was no plan to do anything beyond our mission so we knew that it was we were had the last crack at it, and so we wanted to get as much done as we possibly could, and uh, and then a little bit more maybe. We had uh, the the unique repairs that we did. G- generally, what we did on Hubble on my first mission, for example, is you would remove a piece of equipment and put a new one in. And that was challenging enough, and we started doing some things on my first flight a little bit differently. We hung a radiator off the side of it to get more heat rejection going, and that whole cooling system that we installed enabled it to use the telescope more. Uh, so that was never intended. So that was kind of interesting. How do you how do you integrate that into the telescope, which is really quite an interesting job to do, and then be involved with you know figuring it out, helping figure it out, and then getting a chance to actually do it. But then we took it a step further with the last mission, where we had a couple instruments that had failed. Uh, they didn't. Their power supplies had failed, and uh, their instruments were fine, but we did not have replacements for the whole unit. So we had to take apart instruments that were never intended to be taken apart, and help design we had you know, of course engineers that did this but but we helped to design the tools that we needed to do those repairs which were really interesting a uh, job to do that just to design of it and then test them and then use them in space and to take these instruments apart and remove the power supplies and put new power supplies in two of the instruments the advanced camera for surveys 
and the other one was the, the space telescope engine spectrograph. And then we did other replacements of scientific instruments and batteries and solar you, you, panels. You're making that sound really easy, but you were dealing no, I'm with... No, I'm not trying to. <laughs> you were it dealing was not with easy. things it's like... very hard. Yes. You were dealing with things like stripped bolts and things. And obviously you can practice yeah, this again and again. Yeah, that was a mistake. That wasn't planned. Oh, okay. I, I, I screwed say, that tell one Tell him up. how he broke it. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that, was, that wasn't in the game plan. Like, uh, strip that. Strip. Yeah, no, we... Uh, yeah, I, I uh, stripped a bolt on it. We had to remove some of the pieces of the instrument on the outside in order to gain access to the inside and we were those were relatively easy to get to and we you know we we planned and practiced but they never gave us an issue in any of the training but that's exactly what I uh, I, I messed up on was I stripped a screw trying to remove this handrail and and the solution was to, to just after after lots of trying other things the, the ground did a test and the ground meaning the control center people in Houston and in the Goddard Space Flight Center. Those engineers are running around on a Sunday <laughs> trying to fix this problem that I created, and the solution was to just tear the thing off the bubble, <laughs> which might sound like an easy solution, but uh, we had to be careful in doing that. Uh, they had to do a test, first of all, to see if I could actually do it, and then once they did that, they were concerned about debris going into the telescope or coming out and, and hitting us, so I had taped the bottom of it to contain all the debris that would be created, and that worked pretty well. And then from then on, we had to do the regular, regularly scheduled stuff. We had, a, we had a display here, actually, yeah. and we displayed the handle that Mike had to break off, not to just constantly <laughs> embarrass him, yeah. but to show the public that, that troubleshooting in space, they could do it, and they could fix yeah. their problems. Yeah. You must be tempted to call him Fruit Loops, actually. Who's that, me? Yeah. Which Eric. No, no, that was... <laughs> Fruit Loops is the line from the Big Bang I know, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that wasn't my idea. You know, I gave him the... I, I might have influenced them, tell, tell, telling him telling the writers stories about nicknames but but they came up with that nickname for that uh, for the character I'd, the I'm quite interested to know about your, the concentration that is required particularly on a spacewalk when you're enclosed within mm-hmm. a suit uh, you've got limited movement um, it's, it's something that involves a lot of precision and stamina you know how mm-hmm. do you get through that you know when does it become difficult at the point where you think yeah I've, I've, I've got to push through this part now well you, you, you train you train to do it you just don't get in a spacesuit and fly to space and tra- so it, it's here it really is years of training and and getting ready and the stamina you, you know you 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 train to to handle that as well to try to be in the best shape you can and know how to use the suit and and uh and you know you want to be careful particularly at the end the fatigue sets in you can start making mistakes and that's that's what we try to work as a team because if you have people looking over your shoulder you're less chance that they'll you'll miss something and you can miss things, you know, especially at the end of a spacewalk. You know, you, you're tired. You're not thinking as clearly as you were eight hours earlier, and you, you're exhausted, and, and you're also drained mentally. It's really does. You're right. It does require that you pay attention, and uh, that can be draining. So, so you practice, practice, practice. You get uh, more proficient at working in the suit and with the tools, and working as a team, and and hopefully you catch the mistakes that you make. And uh, you know, certainly my team helped me at, at you know, throughout and. Uh, caught some stuff at the end that uh, that I was grateful that they did so uh, yeah uh, and in terms of Hubble it now can't be repaired you can't there's no way anyone can go up there and fix it again is do you think that's a shame that there's nothing that can do that particularly with the problems we've had recently with uh, Hubble losing its gyroscopes yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know if I was telling Eric this, but all I needed, all I needed, is a wrench, a spacesuit, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and an hour and a half. Yeah, it was a rea- Yeah, we could replace those gyros. Pretty. I, I replaced them on orbit. The reaction wheels on my first on my first flight, and, and then the, the other, another set of gyros 
uh, rate sensor units on my second flight. Um, I, you know, it's, there's different ways to look at things. You know, it'd be great to keep it going, but we have uh, more more telescopes coming. We have James Webb's uh, telescope is going is going to launch, and I think Hubble's long from being done as well. They were able to, I, I think, from last I heard, they were working on a solution, and it looked like they were going to try to get the Hubble back online. We really don't have a choice. Um, if it really went went dead and wasn't functioning anymore, I'm sure there'd be discussions at NASA to see what they could do to try to, depending on what the problem was and what was available, I think it is worth saving if, if something were to happen, but it would depend on what the failure was. Um, How do you feel about the fact that, obviously, the shuttle is no longer flying, but that there are all these commercial spaceflight companies partnering with NASA in many cases? No, I think it's great. I think that uh, we're entering this new era, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, It's certainly going to be exciting. Uh, I think it will be successful. It may have some bumps in the road. Um, You know, they're working right now primarily NASA for the commercial crew program, for example. They're working with Boeing and with SpaceX, and uh, we'll see how that, how that turns out. Uh, hopefully uh, it's going to be perfect, but I, my, my hunch is there's going to be little things. Uh, little things that are, I mean, it's taken them longer than they expected, for example, but I think eventually they'll start launching with both of those vehicles, and we'll, and we'll get people to space. I, I think this is, this is a great step. Um, that might be one of those things that we don't really appreciate the significance of until years from now and we look back and this is another this is a new a new era in space exploration where it's not just governments it's now commercial companies who can sell these seats not only to the united states but to other countries and to other companies and to private paying citizens uh i think it's a very exciting time and i think it will open up opportunities for that we, we can't even think of right now so i think it's a very very exciting time now, your specialisms, or, or one of your specialisms, is working with robotics, human-robot interactions, automating things. Do you need an astronaut? Do you need another Mike Massimino? Could you not just operate a remote Mike Massimino Wait, one up in orbit? Could you not have? I mean, I mean, we're talking with Orbital Gateway of having astronauts maybe on board the this orbiting mm-hmm. laboratory around the moon, and then controlling rovers on the surface. Is that the way? things are heading now will there always be a role for humans well you know i think there i think we should not fear technology or uh, advancements or progress I, we have to embrace it and can't oh we're going to get replaced i don't think that's a i think we have to look at what we can do with technology and with robotics and artificial intelligence and certainly if it can play a role and uh, and help that's great and if we get to the point where you can send a, a robot someplace and that robot can do what it needs to do, uh, and you can then you can find other creative things for humans to do in space exploration. But I think right now, anyway, we're not that close to that. Uh, you know, for example, what I described with pulling that handrail off, it was good to have a person on board that could do that. And if you look at the Mars rover, it it you know it, it remote it it uh, is operated remotely, but it moves really slowly. And the reason is is that it's it cannot react quickly to a change in whatever the state of things are. If, encounters an obstacle or a problem it, it, it's it's more or less stuck and they've had rovers on mars get stuck and so they operate it really really slowly so that it hopefully will not get stuck so human can cover a lot more ground right now than any rover can do a lot more things than any robot is that going to be the case forever probably not i mean pretty soon yeah i i think using technology to, to help us in every way makes things better and i think that there'll always be a role for people and maybe it's more in a supervisory role, or maybe it's doing more creative things, or 
things that we need people to be a part of. Uh, so I think there's always going to be that role, but more we can utilize technology, robotics, I think that that's a good thing. I also probably think in a way for, for you, Eric, while you have on, on board the ship, you have an amazing collection of technological hardware and, and the shuttle and various planes, actually the human connection here with Mike is an important asset. It's one of the most important, really. And I was brought on board because uh, to take care of the airplanes. And you notice we're an outdoor museum and 27 airplanes out here in the environment of New York City. When it's really quiet, you can hear them rotting away. And so it's a, there's always work here uh, for preservation and things. But uh, I'm a historian, so when I came on board, I appreciate that machine, and I'm pointing at an airplane here. But what about the guys that flew it? And so one of the things I do is try to find those people. Been very successful at it. Oh, we had a guy this morning um, on the submarine, one of the Growler, and yeah. he was the volunteer was incredible telling us how he felt working. So the volunteers, they are the living history that come here, and they're they're the kind of people we try to bring in. We also have a very strong oral history program, so when we find these folks, we bring them in. We also travel. Uh, The other curator, Jessica Williams, and I have traveled to Florida and uh, to to go to a a Navy squadron reunion because they're all there, and just get an extra room, set it up as a sound studio, and and do interviews all day. It's wonderful. Well, it's certainly wonderful for us to I guess I have one last question. I wonder Uh, how, you mentioned the Fruit Loops. How much like your Big Bang Theory character are you in real life? Maybe I should ask Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Mike brought his real personality to the TV screen. (laughs) But uh, Mike is a lot of fun to work with. Very smart man to boot. So, you know, we do get the benefit of both the, the fun to work with and the smart guy to work with. You can stop uh, paying him now, Mike. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. But, <laughs> well, he bought but, me lunch last week. But, you know, the, 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 just quickly, the, with, with, uh, with what we did on the, on the TV shows, we were making fun of Wallowitz a lot. Yeah. And uh, I even told the, the show's creators and the writers, we would never do this to a person who was having... <laughs> And they said, no, 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 Mike, this is comedy. This isn't real space travel. And this is, a, this is, this is how we make it funny. It's like, okay, fine. But so, no, I, I would hope I wouldn't make fun of a crew member or the people wouldn't make fun of me the way we did uh, while it's, even though there's plenty of opportunities to do that. You generally don't. That's not helpful. But we, we really picked on him. But that was part of the script. But that I is me. <laughs> but that was me. I was playing me. Yeah. I was. You know, they were, they were, one of the writers said, "I might not be an actor, but I'm really good at playing me." <laughs> so that's that's what. Yeah, you saw me on that show. But it, the lines were written by the writers. Mike Massimino yeah, and Eric Bain. But thank you both very much for uh, being with us and playing yourselves on the USS Intrepid. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. You're listening to Space Buffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, you know, if you ever bumped into us in the street in person. All reputable social media outlets. <laughs> Do we know and any some, reputable no, some, no. Some, some that are not so reputable. Okay, so now let's talk about this. Some of the archive that NASA has rediscovered, the audio archive, over the last 50 years, 60 years, of human spaceflight. Houston, Columbia, reading you loud and clear. I'm in. Roger, bye-bye, Mike. Uh, how did it go? Over. Could I have your name and how you'd like to be described? Greg Wiseman, uh, audio engineer, uh, NASA Television. Listen, babe, everything's going just swimmingly. Beautiful. Great. We're standing by for Eagle. So can you describe to me what this awesome-looking piece of equipment is i guess it's the size of a chest freezer a little bit higher it almost comes up to my shoulder and it's got these enormous reel-to-reel tapes mounted on the panel on the side and this kind of 
It's got grey NASA colour. It's that grey 60s colour panel. You could imagine this alongside the equipment in the original control room. So this is the Soundscriber. This would be a playback machine of this tape format. So this is one inch, 30 track tape format. It's kind of an original format. They, it was developed you know, specifically for recording all of these backroom communication loops of the flight control room. So uh, how many is that recording then simultaneously? It's 30 tracks that, yes, that were rec- recorded simultaneously. Actually, 29 audio tracks, and one of them was a time code track. The first code was time code. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for power descent. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. So for the time, I mean, that's quite advanced, looking at, you know, sort of mid to late 60s technology. I mean, recording studios weren't even doing... 29-track recording, 30-track recording. Right, and so this one, if you could see on the front of it, it's serial number two. So this was built specifically for the space program. They would have four of these recorders recording simultaneously, and so this particular machine that we have here is the actual playback machine. This one can only read two tracks at a time. So the way it would work, it's got two heads, and it has a little counter on the front of it that'll tell you which track that you're reading. And so if you want to read the next track, then you turn a little wheel and it physically moves the head uh, along the, the tape. So that way you can figure out which track that you want to listen to. Actually, you can see that on the front. There's nothing digital about this, is no. there? There's literally a little handle that you turn to turn the counter around. So it's currently reading track 14 and track 7. The tape is very old, so we really didn't want to have to put, you know, there's, there's 30 tracks if we only had two heads that meant we would have to you know, play it back roughly seven times to get all of the audio off of it. So we weren't sure that the tape had that sort of longevity in, left before it would kind of snap. So what we did was we worked with the people, uh, the folks at UT Dallas, and they worked with a audio head company that sort of re-engineered something that could read all 30 tracks at the same time. So that we modified this Soundscriber and put that 30-track head on there and so we were able to, to roll it off and capture everything at once. Okay, we got data back. Radar flight looks good. Raj. 2,000 feet. Raj. 2000 now, 29 tracks. So this is, what, 29 separate conversations going on during every, every mission? Right. For every mission, there are different flight consoles that are in mission control, and they all represent different systems and different aspects of the flight Uh, There'll be booster, there'll be guidance, flight dynamics, and all of these people have their own sort of like a teleconference where everybody can jump on that line and they can talk specifically about their systems or whatever they're supporting. All of those different consoles, they had backroom people that were also supporting them, and they would all be talking about different phases of the mission and, and their different systems. So if you wanted to talk to that, if you wanted to talk to booster, you would call them on their loop, and that was all of these, all of those loops were always being recorded. Why record them? There's a lot of things that you can learn. If there's ever a contingency, you can kind of go back and listen to the auto recordings and see if you can pinpoint how people reacted, what information might have been passed along at that particular time. So it's an opportunity for them to to be able to make sure that they have all the data that they can review at a later time. Okay, all flight controllers hang tight. Should be throttling down pretty shortly. But this is real history here, that, that, you know, on that this tape here just on the machine that's things that have never that won't have been heard since those original conversations an extraordinary record really right and so the way i look at it is if you think about apollo 11 landing on the moon it's you know one of the greatest engineering feats in human history 
but it wasn't just you know the astronaut that set foot on the moon. It was all of these different teams that worked together to make that happen. And so the audio that you've heard so far is Neil Armstrong and Capcom, but there was all these different teams that were working simultaneously to support that. So all of this audio that we've now released is sort of the rest of the story of, of how that happened. 1201, Roger, 1201. Same type, we're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go, same type, we're go. And what have you heard as you've gone along? Because presumably you're not going through methodically listening to every every track. There must be some degree of of automation here in this process. And and it's the typical things. You hear these different loops, and they're all speaking their NASA sort of jargon, and so they're talking about their, their different systems, and that's what you'd expect to hear. The interesting parts of it is that you know, this is a snapshot in time. So you hear these people, they would call home and, they, you know, and just speak to their wife about different things like, hey, you know, they landed on the moon. And then you hear these people, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can even believe that. So you really sort of hear the human side of the story that you don't necessarily capture whenever people know they're being broadcast to air. And so they're very formal and watching their P's and Q's. But here you hear little bits of audio from just the human side of it. these. These were, I mean, when they're out in the open, these these engineers are very focused and very professional. But the, this captured their sort of the other side of it when they're you know they they don't know that they, I mean they know that they were being recorded, but they probably didn't think this stuff would ever be released to the public. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. And anything surprising, or have have any people gone through it? I mean, you put it all out out there. It's all in the Internet Archive. It's 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 online. People can listen to it. People can use it. Has anyone come back to you and said, "Wow, I've heard this that no one's heard before"? Oh yeah, there's been a lot of response since we re- released it. Um, there's been several documentary filmmakers that have been taking this. There's a lot of, of film that was shot during the time, a lot of the film that was shot during the Ficker, but none of the, they didn't have the, the ability to record audio at that time. But this audio was being recorded. So there's some filmmakers that are coming out with some different documentaries where they've finally been able to take this audio and, and marry it back with their film. And so now we have moving picture with audio. And so there's a couple of projects that are coming out. There's a big community that loves this kind of stuff because this is a side of history that no one's ever seen before. So there's been a lot of interest. There's a lot of people that are kind of going through it and finding different gems. Okay, T1, stay no, stay. Retro, stay. Title, stay. Guidance, stay. Control, stay. Telcom, stay. GNC, stay. Ecom, stay. Surgeon, stay. Capcom, or stay for T1. Okay, it looks like we're bending the axis either up. Roger, Eagle, and you are staying right, for control. T1. Go control. Eagle, we're you're staying for T1. Right, bending us. Roger. And we're staying for T1. Roger, and we see you venting the ox. You've been listening to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We've been on the USS Intrepid in New York City. And if you're wondering, how does the space bo- how do the space boffins afford this sort of glamorous trip? Well, uh, we don't. We don't really. We were on holiday here. We thought, well, there's an astronaut in New York. Let's go and interview the astronaut in New York. So that's how it, uh, it kind of happened. Uh, we'll be talking more about our funding in the future. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? On the Space <laughs> Podcast. Thank you to uh, Atrium Space Insurance Consortium for sponsoring us, particularly for the last seven years. Thanks for listening. <laughs>